Well, good morning and welcome to Eastlake. If you guys haven't been here before or haven't seen me in a while, reminder, my name's Margo. I'm the Wearluff pastor here. Uh, don't feel too bad or get too worried about where Brent is. He is enjoying the Seahawks game in Denver. What a lucky duck is he. Uh, but we're here, we get free coffee, and we're not in Denver, so I guess that's, that's okay. Like, it's, it's good. I get to eat nachos instead of pay $20 for them, so... I don't know. At the end, I think it's kind of a wash. But uh, we're starting this new series called Flipping Tables, a series on social justice. Super excited about it uh, because I, I love social justice. I love missions and all that stuff. And I think this is a great series uh, if you're not into church or haven't been to church in a while because I feel like most people can agree that there are things in society across the world that aren't great. Uh, systems in place or, or people that are going through really hard times and that I feel like we feel for maybe for some groups more than others some level of burden or responsibility to help alleviate that I don't think that's a Christian thing I think that's a human thing to try to care about other people and to want to help their situation uh, and we see we're going to look into um, things that Jesus, his life, his example has shown um, that he has a similar heart that we do, which isn't a surprise because, you know, we, we resemble that which made us and which created us. Uh, but also, our Brent, I know Brent's going to go back into some of the history of social justice in the Bible, but uh, I know uh, church can be intimidating for people, and so I just want to let you guys know that we're a church for people that typically, typically don't like church, which means that we don't serve, you know, Kool-Aid in the lobby, there's no jumpsuits, nothing like that. Uh, you're welcome to come and have questions and want to wrestle through stuff, and no one's going to ask for your seat back, uh, which is one of my favorite things about Eastlake. I think if any place should be a welcoming place for people that want to kick the tires on Christianity and ask questions, it should be in church. A church should be the most welcoming place for that, and so we love what we do here. So uh, so glad that you decided to check us out uh, pre-watching some Seahawks. Uh, but uh, so I'm the Wear Love Pastor here, which means um, my job is to get people connected to volunteering uh, to great organizations in the community or here in the church uh, because there's something really satisfying about taking your time, which is essentially one of the most precious things that we have, uh, and giving that away to help other people. And um, I've been able to do that, been blessed to do that in my life. And one of the places... I was able to volunteer, was in Chicago. Do I have any, like, Chicago peeps or, like, Cubs fans or something like that? Woo, Chicago! <laughs> I like Chicago because uh, I'm a Red Sox fan, so I feel like the Cubs are, like, the ne next best thing because we both know that the struggle is real. And after that is, like, probably Cleveland Browns and teams have, like, just had a bad go of things. But love Chicago. A really cool city. Uh, got to do a bunch of different work there. But I was partnered with these girls uh, that were kind of difficult to work with. Uh, they were from the University of Alabama, uh, and like that's fine, but I'm a New Englander. I was born in New Hampshire, and so you got like the Yankee, and you got like the Southern Belle together, and it was just kind of oil and vinegar <laughs> a little bit. Uh, they're lovely ladies, but just challenging sometimes. And uh, one of the things that kind of rubbed me the wrong way was uh, we're in a rough neighborhood. Like, this is a reality. It wasn't, like, this was not night number one that we're in Chicago. Like, you know that there, you're going to see some things that you probably don't see in Alabama. And <laughs> we're sleeping in this building, and we wake up kind of before our alarm goes off, and I look around, and I see that all of the Alabama girls are gone. I'm like, maybe they woke up for like a 5 a.m. mani-pedi, like I don't, I don't know, like curling their hair in the bathroom, so I'm looking around for them. I finally found, find them in a utility closet, 
huddled all together, like smeared mascara, all this stuff going on. I'm like, what is, what's going on? And they're like, y'all, we heard some gunshots and I'm pretty sure they're in the building. And I was like, and you didn't wake us up? Like, you guys just left us for dead, hiding in the closet. Doesn't start uh, your companionship off to a great start. They just left us there. Uh, but they did give me one good piece of advice. I remember they, they, they were shocked that I had never been to a Chick-fil-A before. Uh, so they're like, when you go Chick-fil-A, got to get yourself number two with a sweet tea, number two with a sweet tea. And I remember like 15 years later when I finally came across Chick-fil-A, I'm like, and I even like, I think I might have used the accent, like I need a number two with a sweet tea and they didn't give me a weird look. Uh, but I got to the window and it was expensive. Has anyone gone and paid for food at Chick-fil-A? I was like, this is fast food, like this is kind of pricey. And my only guess is that they charge extra for the blessing. That's like the only rational conclusion. I could come to you. But anyways, uh, Chicago was great. Um, we did lots of work with the homeless and like um, an orphanage and a soup kitchen, but they decided to give us, you know, the best experience ever. And they dropped us off on the campus of the U University of Illinois, Chicago during finals week and said, hey, this college is full of pre-med and pharmaceutical students go and tell them about Jesus. And we're like, we're not Mormons, but we'll do it. So we were like, ah, oh, this is the worst thing ever. That's why I'm a pastor. I want people to come to me. Like, I don't, I don't like to get in your space when you're trying to study and I don't know. But they gave us this tool that was kind of cool. It's called the Solarium, which now it's an app. It's all fancy. But back then it was just a pack of essentially index card size photos that were pretty like random and artsy and generic. And you were supposed to use this to start conversations with people. Uh, it's supposed to be a, like a, for a tool to get people that normally don't talk, want to talk about religion, everyone, and <laughs> to get them to talk about it. And so you would lay out all these photos and you'd get someone to come and you'd be like, pick three pictures that represent your life right now and how you're feeling. And they're in finals, so they're all like, I'm stressed, I'm miserable, I don't want to be talking to a stranger. And you're like, yeah, I now pick three pictures that tell me how you feel about God. And they're like, Okay, apparently you didn't see the first three, so <laughs> like, I'm stressed. <laughs> I'm talking to strange people. And uh, it was really cool. I got to talk to a, a pair. I saw them together, and I was like, I need to know their life story because it was a guy and a girl around the same age. She had like long blonde hair and this like pleated skirt and this nice little sweater and a pearl necklace. And he had like this studded leather jacket and a lip ring and a mohawk. And I was like, I need to know like what is going on here. So I sat him down. It turns out they're brother and sister, which I'm like, this is magical. And I had them look through the photos. And um, one of the questions that you ask is pick a picture in this that marks how you feel about God or the people that Christians refer to as God because, you know, not everyone is, like, on board, and we totally get that. And so they actually ended up picking the same picture, which we have up here. And I was like, this is kind of a strange picture. Like, there's some that, like, showed, like, rainbows and families, and I was thinking that. And they both picked this picture. And when I asked the girl why she picked this picture uh, in terms of how she felt who God was. And she says, well, you know, I feel like life is really hard and challenging at times, but God has control over it and he's there and he's bigger than the problem. And I was like, oh, like that's a really nice way to look at it. And then her brother goes, yeah, I picked that picture because people talk about this God who's this big guy and he's trying to control my life and I'm biting him back. <laughs> like he ain't gonna tell me what to do with my life. And in that moment, I just realized that the same thing can be viewed very different ways. And the same God that 
they were both having the conversation about can be viewed in completely opposite ways. And so it, it asks the question, how do most people see God or the, the Christian God? How do people see Jesus or how do people feel about Jesus? And I think for a lot of people that are at least somewhat bought in, like you do the, the Easter Christmas thing or you were raised in a semi-religious household, we, we kind of lean, if we're like, if I have to paint a picture of what God looks like, we lean to this very like loving, gentle God, right? Gentle Jesus, this, this very non-confrontational, peace-loving, like probably drives to Westphalia and goes camping a lot. Like this very like Birkenstock, you know, very chilled, non-confrontational Jesus. And it reminded me of um, this song, this hymn that we'd sing back, you know, I'm a recovering Catholic, so back in like CCD. And there was this song that painted this, this picture of Jesus, which I thought was like kind of on the more extreme ends of like who God could be. And it was called Gentle Jesus, Meek and Mild, which I'm like, I don't know if I want a God that's meek and mild, but these are some of the words that you can find in it. So Gentle Jesus, Meek and Mild, thou art gentle, meek and mild. Thou wast once a little child. And I'm like, this is like, kind of seems like demeaning. But if you think about it, people like going to church for Christmas more so, I think, than Easter. And why is that? Because Christmas, we got baby Jesus. And there's not too much scary about baby Jesus. He's all chubby and cute, and there's barn animals. Like, there's something for everyone. There's gifts, there's presents, there's lights. It's so beautiful. And then we get to, we, we, you know, that's the last church we went to. Then we show up for Easter, and all of a sudden, it's like this gory man and death and, like, scariness. And so I think we tend to lean on the baby Jesus, or we were like, eh, if I can pick between the two, I'm going to go with cute little chubby baby Jesus, because, you know, he's not going to push his opinions on me. He's just a baby. He's not going to, you know, challenge anything that I'm doing. Like, he's just cute and cuddly. And it reminds me, I don't know if anyone's seen, like, the high-class film that, with a character that may have been called Ricky Bobby, and they're sitting down to pray at a meal, and he's praying, and he says, sweet little baby Jesus, and his friend calls him out saying, like, you know, Jesus grew up, like, he didn't stay a baby, and he's like, no, no, like, I like to picture Jesus as a little baby, and so he's praying, he's like, little seven pound, eight ounce, little baby Jesus, <laughs> and I think um, we're not really comfortable with the idea of church or organized religion, but, like, we think that Jesus, if, if it's anything, like, maybe it is Jesus, we like to lean heavy on the baby Jesus, we like to lean on that kind, gentle, meek version. In fact, they, I don't know if we have the, some other lyrics from this thing. This, I'm like, who's singing this? Thou art pitiful and kind. Let me have thy loving mind. Like this, this seems very easy to swallow version of who God is. We like Christmas Jesus, baby Jesus. And yet when we, when we open our Bible and when we look at what it says about God and about Jesus, we see that actual, in actuality, Jesus is, and God is not so one-dimensional. To me, it's more like a coin. And we have this coin here. And on one side of the coin, we see this. We see this gentle Jesus. We see, oh, God has got to love 
and he loves us, and he did so much for us because he's so loving and so gracious. And then on the other side, we're like, the, I, you know, the side I don't really want to talk about is this condemnation, right? You're opening it up, and they're like, and there was gnashing of teeth for 20 generations, and the children cried in the streets. And you're like, ah, like, where, where can I flip? Like, you're doing, like, the random, I'm going to open a page and put my finger down. And you get scared to do that because you don't know what side of the coin it's going to land on. Like, am I going to encounter the, the, the kind, gentle Jesus? or am I going to encounter like this scary, overwhelming condemnation kind of God? And I feel like a lot of people, that's their biggest, biggest pushback against doing life with God, about, about trying out church culture or anything like that. It's because we don't know. We don't know what we're going to get. You're like, all right, if I show up on Sunday, like, is the sermon going to make me uncomfortable? Am I going to just be like arguing with the person talking in my head? Or is it going to be something I can get behind and be motivated and like leave there like fist pumping? If I open my Bible, am I going to find like this super encouraging, like, yeah, rallying call? Or is it going to be this weird, scary verse? Uh, you know, I don't want to pray because in my head, is God going to be like, oh, I got you? Or is he going to be like, you know what you did? I seen the Snapchat. <laughs> we, don't, we don't know what side of the coin we're going to get. And so we're just like, I don't want to, I don't want to flip it at all. Like, I don't want to touch it with a 20 foot pole. I don't want to, I don't want to actually enter into a relationship with God because I don't want to get one side of the coin. Like one side of the coin is great. And the other side is not so great. But if you think about it, if you, if you go to a store and you purchase something and you, they give you some change and they give you a quarter and you look at it and you flip it over and one side's blank, if it only has one side to it. You're like, this is, this is counterfeit. A one-sided coin is counterfeit. And I'd like to argue that a one-sided God is also counterfeit. I mean, if we're willing to give ourselves the grace to be like, I have good days and bad days. I have uh, things I feel strongly about and things that, you know, strongly about being like, this is not okay. And I have things that, uh, that I'm willing to cheer on. If, I, if things make me angry and upset at the injustice in the world and then things, there's people I want to cheer on. Why do we say that God can only be one thing or the other? I mean, a person that's only happy all the time is either not all there or on lots of Prozac. <laughs> like, this is, not, this is not God. God is a multi-dimensional God. He is both sides of the coin. And in the series, we're going to touch on some of the things that we see that God clearly is not okay with. Things that, that really, that, that make him like mourn for the state of the world and the state of people in it. And I, and I know that the, the term social injustice is a buzzword right now, right? Like you say that at the dinner table and immediately half the family gets super uncomfortable and the other half steps up on a soapbox and it's just, it's bad. Thanksgiving is coming. You need to like prepare yourself. But social justice or social injustice is something that has been around for as long as we've had civilization and society. It's not a Christian thing. It's not a new thing. This is, there's always been groups of people that have been placed into a system that they can't get out of. I mean, we have slavery. We have, we have so many things in human history uh, that show that this is not new. This is not a new issue. And we see that, that God decided, I mean, he only had so much time on earth to like put his money where his mouth is, to live this life that he's been telling people to live all along. And he intentionally spent time to touch on this, this topic of social justice. And so we can see this come up uh, in this section of the Bible that, that's referred to in the book of Mark, and it's a book in a book. It's the chapter of Mark, and it's in 1115. And it's talking about Jesus and his disciples, which essentially is like, the people that he's training up to take over the family business after him. 
And they came to Jerusalem, which is the center of Jewish religion at this point. They came to Jerusalem, and he, Jesus, entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. So this may seem very like strange because you're like, well, I, I've been to church a couple times and I've never seen it. Like maybe a super church that sells their coffee in the lobby, but like, you know, sponsor a child. Like I've seen stuff like that, but I'm not seeing pigeons and money changing. And so just to explain that, so I don't want you guys to get lost in this because the thing we need to understand is when the Bible was written, people understood this perfectly because this was, this was part of their culture. And so if we don't take the time to understand the culture, the point of view that they're from, then a lot of this is going to seem unrelated and dated. But it's very relevant when we, when we tear it apart a little bit. So money changers, one of the people that he specifically notes that he was not happy with, that he threw out, money changers. So what a money changer was, was um, Jewish people, people of the Jewish faith were expected to come to Jerusalem, to come to the big temple, and to, to pay their respects, to pray there. Um, didn't matter where you were living in the known world at this point. If you were Jewish or of the Jewish faith, like at some point in your life, preferably yearly, you would make, save all your money, take time off from your job, and you and your family would make this trip to Jerusalem to pay your respects to God, essentially. And when you went there, there was something called the temple tax because, you know, the lights don't stay on by themselves kind of thing. And they wanted to, they wanted to, they, if you make a law that you have to come and then you charge people to come, like, that's a great money scheme, right? Like, you have no choice but to come and to pay money. Uh, otherwise, you're ostracized from society. And so these people would come from afar. And the trouble was, is that their money, much like our money, has images of rulers or important people. And they're not church people, right? Like, we don't, we don't have Moses on our quarter or anything like that. They may look, like, weird and old, but they're not, they're not Bible characters or Bible heroes. Maybe in, like, Jesus Monopoly or something, the money looks like that. But it's not real. It's not reality of civilizations. And so they would come with these coins that had these rulers or these things that were irreligious on them. And the, the temple people running the system were so strict that they're like, we don't even want that. We don't, their money's not good enough to be here. You're, we're gonna, you have to pay something, but not with that money. And so what they would do is that they would change the money into their own personal coin, and they would, of course, charge a nice hefty fee to do this. So not only are they making people pay money, but they're charging people this fee to change it over into this currency. And then we, the other group of people that Jesus gets upset with are, um, specifically are those who sold pigeons, which can seem really weird. Like, I feel like that's a crazy guy downtown selling pigeons. Like, what is this about? Uh, and so back in Jewish culture, the only way to get right with God to make up for, because we all have shortcomings, we all make mistakes. The only way to get right with God was an animal sacrifice. Thank goodness that's not the case anymore. <laughs> but so, and this is similar in many other cultures, many other religions. And so you'd have to bring an animal to the temple and sacrifice it in order to, to make amends, essentially. And so pigeons were kind of the low, the low ball. It was like when your grandma knits you like a handmade sweater that's like for a four-year-old. And you're like, thanks, grandma, for this great gift. Like pigeons were the bottom of the chain on like what you could give to God, to the temple. Uh, and so it was really the, mostly the poor people that would, that's because that's all they could afford. They couldn't afford a nicer sacrifice than a pigeon. And traditionally, the people that bought pigeons the most were women that, poor women that had just had children. Because in Jewish culture, if you had a child, it made you unclean. I mean, yeah, it's a messy, it's a messy business, but you had to, to make yourself right with God and ceremonially clean yourself, so you had to buy this pigeon. So these people are taking advantage of some very 
vulnerable people groups. You have uh, people that have traveled a long way and probably spent a lot of money that they probably didn't have to be there. You're making that, you're charging them this extra fee to change their money. And then you're taking advantage of poor women to, to, to get ahead and to make some extra, extra moolah there. And part of me gets angry that they're taking advantage of this opportunity, of, of this situation. I mean, they're leveraging it because they know people don't have a choice. But it's pretty opportunistic if you think about it. And that, that, that heart can be in all of us. I know for me, uh, we went on vacation to the Oregon coast recently. And we went to this place in Astoria called the Astoria Tower, which is like a lighthouse, but like a mile inland. It's kind of confusing. Uh, and so you go there, and it's like 168 steps up. And then you have this beautiful view. And uh, luckily, I had, we had went with uh, my husband's sister who had been there before. And she says, before you get to the top, you need to buy an airplane. And we're like, what? And she says, at the gift shop at the bottom, you can go and for a dollar, you can buy these wooden like glider planes. And when you get to the top, you can throw them off. And it's really cool to see how far they go and how long they stay up. And it's a really fun experience. And I was like, that doesn't sound like super exciting, but we'll, I mean, it's a buck. We'll try it out. And so we got, we got a couple planes, uh, didn't die climbing up. It was a close one. And so you know, you're catching your breath, you're recovering at the top, and then you're flying these planes off. And it actually was like really cool. I mean, it's a beautiful view. It was really fun to see like who could get their plane to go further. And we're grown adults. And it was still like a good time. And then you see these children whose parents did not get the advice. And they're crying, and they're like, I want a plane, I want a plane, why didn't it? And then the parents are thinking, I don't think I can make it up these stairs a second time. <laughs> like, I don't think I can do it. I may die. Like, we are living at the top of this tower. I don't even want to go back down. And so in my head, I'm thinking, I, pr I probably could get, like, a whole bag of planes and climb to the top of the tower. And, you know, the gift shop, shop charges $1. I could charge $2, and I can make bank selling these planes to people that don't want to walk back down the tower to do this. And so that heart of, of seizing an opportunity, I think, is in all of us. But this is really, uh, to me, it gets seedy because the people they're taking advantage of is not tourists with children. It's the poor and the foreigner and things like that. And so we see that there's uh, some other, other things going on here because the pigeons is part of it. But the thing you have to remember is if people are coming from a long ways off, they're not going to want to bring animals with them, right? I mean, like going on a road trip with a two-year-old is the closest thing we know to understanding this. <laughs> and they're buckled in and they got snacks and they got Netflix. But these people would have to travel long distances with animals to bring as a sacrifice. And the only way I can empathize with that is that I, when I moved here, from the East Coast, I had to fly with my cat because I was a lonely, sad person. And so uh, I had my cat with me, but it was December, and they're like, cat can't go under the plane. You'll get like a cat icicle, so you have to keep it on the plane with you. And I'm like, great, this is, I'm going to just be the most hated person in plane history. Because babies, when they're crying, are cute, and you can empathize. You're like, I've been there. Cats crying on the plane, you're like, you are a crazy person, and we all hate you. So I, I did the right thing. I, I tried to drug them. Uh, I spent <laughs> I spent $200 at the vet to get the kitty Xanax. And I remember telling her, I'm like, this is 14 hours of travel. Like, this needs to be the good stuff. And she's like, don't worry. Give him half a pill, and he'll be, like, good for the whole day. And I'm like, sweet. So I give him the half a pill. 
Uh, she's a liar. I think she took advantage of me. Uh, and when I had a layover and when I stopped, I'm like in that family restroom, like barricading my cat in there, shoving the other one and a half pills down his throat. Uh, I think I had 10 minutes of silence and the rest was like, you know, when you watch the shows where they are catching the crocodiles and they're doing what they call the death roll. That was my cat in this bag, like, like yowling and like screaming. And then he also learned how to open it from the inside. So the whole flight, I had to be bent over holding it shut. It was horrible. That was flying with a cat. This is modern technology, modern medicine, and it was horrible. I can't imagine taking a goat or a bird or something over the desert in arid times and all this stuff. Uh, and so it, people were really vulnerable to be taken advantage of by people being like, oh, don't bring an animal with you. I'll sell you in here for five times what you, know, you should have paid for it. And the other thing that really is upsetting when you look at oftentimes what would happen to these people that'd be like, oh, okay, I'll buy a bird here so I have something to give, is they would take this, this pigeon into the temple, and the thing is they had very strict rules on like if it's a good enough animal or not, like it couldn't have certain spots or it had to look really healthy. And they could look at that pigeon and say, mm, not good enough, go out and buy another one from my father who will then give the money to me. Like this was a really horrible situation and system that was set up that these people were stuck in. They didn't have a choice, right? And so the, the third thing that Jesus kind of draws attention to, if you look at the rest of this passage, is that, uh, and he said, um, and Jesus, he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And so this is important. Like I always skipped over this when I read this in the past, is people were essentially using the temple as like the, ah, I can cut through there to get to the market quicker. I can, you know, pass through here. And he's like, this is not, this is not a hallway. Like this is kind of an important space. Uh, and often, so the thing we need to know if you, if you had a diagram of the temple is the place that people were cutting through and the place is the same place that people were selling things. And this part of the temple was not a lobby. It was not a open area. It was not the front patio or the deck or anything like that. This space was intentionally reserved for Gentiles and foreigners, essentially people that that wanted to to be near God, but were not seen as like quite the religious elite. And so this was a space reserved for them. Like they actually had a spot where they could go and, and, and try to, to, you know, give a sacrifice and spend time with God, even if they weren't welcomed by the rest of the community. They still had their own space in the temple that was supposed to be for them. And instead, they, they clog it up with all these horrible people taking advantage of people, and other folks are just passing through. And so they've taken away this space that is meant for them. And Jesus uh, calls them out, because I mean, the religious leaders are hearing him, because he's just flipped tables, and he says, and he was teaching them and saying to them, and he's quoting something that the Jewish people would know, because it comes from their, their religious teaching, and he quotes this, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayers for all nations, and now I want to go back to what he's citing, because I think the full context is kind of important, he's citing this verse that we can find in Isaiah, and it says this, there being like the people that are not Jewish, the people that are not the religious, like in the in crowd, the people that are the foreigners. This is God, like God's message. It says, their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. He's saying, I don't care what they're bringing. If they're bringing something, it is good. It is good for me. You can't tell me that that pigeon is too spotted. or Whatever they bring, it's awesome. I'm going to accept it. I'm going to appreciate it. For my house, the temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Now, this is important. 
Because the Jews thought it was all about them, right? They're the chosen people. But here we see that God's saying, I designed my church, my temple, to be a place for everyone to be welcome. And I think it's really interesting where... Um, if you're, if you're kicking the tires on Christian, or I have friends that have, like, I tried the church thing, I walked in, and they, they pretty much said, if you have any questions or doubt about the God thing, or if you have any questions or doubt about the Bible, then, like, there's the door. Like, give us your seat. And I think that God is trying to say that if there should be any place where people can come with their questions and doubts and wrestle through this thing called faith in life with God, it should be the church. Uh, a church should be a place not just for Christians, Christians, but for all people. And so this is the example he was trying to set up. And as Jesus saw when he walked into the temple, they removed this space for those people to be welcome. They literally took out their seats and said, sorry, like only the religious in crowd can come here. And then he, they took advantage of them financially. Like it's, it's kind of a double blow. And so to me, this, this shows that Jesus is trying to, to address this, this system that was in place. And so we see in the system that locals are favored over foreigners, right? Because <laughs> locals can just get an animal easier and the foreigners get taken advantage of. We see that the rich are favored over the poor. And this we see that the Jews are favored over the Gentiles or the people that just were not as religiously correct. And the thing that's really sad about this example, this, this experience that Jesus has, is this is not done by the everyday person. This is at the hands of the church, the church is doing this. The church has created this system. The God has said that my, my temple will be a, a house for all people, and the church is saying, nah, like, but not these ones and not these ones and not these ones. Or if they are going to come, we're going to make it really hard for them. What we see is just Jesus flipping tables. But what he is really doing is tearing down barriers. The barrier between rich and poor the barrier between the religious in-crowd and those that wouldn't measure up, the barrier between the locals and the foreigners or the strangers. And it's actually interesting, if you look at how Jesus spent his time in his limited years, uh, we see that this is actually the second time that he's come into the temple and tried to tear down these barriers and make this clear to people. And I think it's interesting, there's actually three times that Jesus addresses what's wrong with the temple and the third time actually happened posthumously. And in, in the Bible, we know that if something happens three times, it's really important. It's seem like holy and like pay attention if you see it happen three times. And so the third time, what he tears down is something a little bit different. The thir uh, third time we see that uh, when Jesus dies, there's this part of the temple called the curtain, which is ripped. And so this is important to know because... Um, that essentially, to, to really make it minimal, the very center of the temple was a place that no one was really allowed. Even Jesus himself was not allowed, which is kind of funny, uh, because they were seen as like, this is the place where like God's spirit, his essence dwells. And if anyone goes in there, they'll just be, have you seen Indiana Jones where like your face melts off and all the like, it is not for mere mortals to go in there. Like this is a place that is too intense, that's too too pure for anyone else to enter. And so they, what they would do is, because the temple was supposed to be mobile, mobile, is they would put this giant thick curtain around it so no one would accidentally fall or, or wander in there. And this is not like your shower curtain from the Dollar Tree. This is a serious business. So this curtain that they had was 60 feet long, 30 feet wide, and one inch thick. This thing was so heavy, in fact, that whenever they had to maneuver it or reposition it, it actually took 300 grown men 
to budget. <laughs> this thing was heavy, and they did that as a protection, right? They didn't want anyone accidentally entering there and bad, bad things happening. And so when Jesus dies, we see that this barrier between God and humanity is torn down. Whereas before, they would only elect one priest from one lineage to go during a year, and they actually would like have a rope around his ankle in case he wasn't good enough, and then things didn't work out, they could like drag him out. They, instead of having all these rules and regulations on who could enter, who could be close to God, Jesus, when he died, the curtain was torn to show that I'm tearing down the final barrier between my people and me. And what's interesting is that the, this curtain was torn from the top to the bottom. And keep in mind, this thing was um, like 60 feet up, right? And so there's no, no ladder that's going to be up there. The fact that it was torn from the top to the bottom tells me that God did it. Because if, if it was a person with scissors, they'd start at the bottom, right? You'd rip your way up. But the, it actually notes in the Bible that it was torn from the top to the bottom, which tells me this is God himself breaking down the last barrier. The last thing so that nothing stands in between us and him. Nothing, nothing prohibits us, nothing limits us. There's no more hoops to jump through. We have total access to the goodness of God. And so in this, in these three instances, we see that, that Jesus is setting the example of how we as people should feel about barriers and what we should do in the face of these systems and these rules that exploit the most vulnerable of people. And I know it's hard because um, I've talked to people uh, and they really struggle with it. They see, you know, people are talking about, oh, this, this is a system that's corrupt, or this is, um, you know, this is in our society, and it's wrong, and it's really, it's preventing people from achieving these things. And it's really hard for us because we hear about, you know, bad cops or things like that. And, and you start saying to yourself, well, like, my uncle's a cop. I know good cops. And we start saying to ourselves, but I, like, I haven't seen this in my society. I haven't seen this in my neighborhood. I haven't experienced that in my upbringing, in my neighborhood, in my church, in my friend group. Like, we're the good guys. Like, I don't see this systematic oppression that everyone's complaining about. What we start saying to ourselves, essentially, if you water it down, is that you're saying this is happening, but that's not been my experience. Like, I hear these horror stories about this town and this, this family, and like, all right, like, that may be true, or maybe you just want your 15 minutes of fame, but I know for sure that's definitely not been my experience. And that can, that can stop us from being like, from, that gives us kind of permission to dismiss it or not address it, because like, that's not my reality, I don't have to face it, I don't have to do anything about it. But here's the thing. When Jesus walked into the temple and saw everything wrong that was going on, Keep in mind this, that Jesus was, and I say white male being like he was the same, same majority race of the people he was with. Uh, Jesus was a white male. He was following the right religious. He was right according to the religious leaders. And he had considerable influence. This guy had everything going for him. And yet he didn't let that stop him from helping and being a voice of righteousness to the most vulnerable the money changers, the pigeon sellers, all that stuff, it didn't affect him. It wasn't a barrier for him, but he couldn't stand by and watch that be a barrier for other people. He wouldn't let a system stand that would hurt vulnerable people. And so really when we, when we go back to this coin illustration of who God is, this love, or is God love or is God condemning? And I think 
what it shows is that God loves all of us too much to not condemn systems and injustices in our world. It's both. It's both. God loves all of us too much to not want to tear down these barriers that are oppressing his children and essentially are keeping us from the fullness that is life with him. And so that's really what the power of the gospel is, right? When Jesus died, the barriers were torn down because before we had to bring animals, we had hoops to jump through. We had what the Jews would call the law, hundreds of rules to follow. And God's saying, I am not a God that is for barriers. I'm a God that is for access and encouragement. And I'm going to do whatever I can to make sure that other people aren't fighting the same injustices and barriers as well. That's the power of who God is, and that's the power of the gospel. So I want you guys uh, in your week and as we go about life to, to keep that in mind. I know it can be really hard because this can come off as political or it can come off as soapboxy, and that's not the intent at all. Uh, politics are awful, and I despise them with <laughs> every ounce of my being. Uh, but it's really hard. And I just, I'm, my challenge for you is this. When, you, when you're scrolling through your Facebook feed, when you're sitting down for that family dinner or Thanksgiving, and these topics come up of, this group is protesting this, and this group is protesting that. And when we, when we are tempted to say to ourselves, well, that's not been my experience, to understand that the people on the other side of these protests, on the other side of these posts, are humans, and they are hurting, and maybe the solution that they want is not the best solution, but there should be a solution, that when Jesus went to the temple, you don't see him saying, and every temple is like this, and every temple is bad. He didn't say that. He didn't, like, just people will say, like, all cops are bad or all cops are good. Jesus is not painting with a broad brush. All he's doing is saying, maybe not every temple is like this, but this one is, and this needs to be addressed. And I think God's not telling us to, to paint everyone as, as, as good or bad or every system as one thing or the other, but he's saying if we see it, if we experience it, we should be surrounding our arms around the people that are being affected and oppressed and to encourage them to not say, that's not my reality. He is a God that's for us and for all people. Would you guys pray with me? Uh, Lord, we're so thankful that even if it's not been our reality, uh, oppression or, or systems of injustice, God, that uh, we're so grateful that that hasn't been our experience, if that's the case. God, help us not to become numb or cynical or, or think that everything's about politics because really what it comes down to is people that are hurting and help us to, to want to work towards a solution instead of stirring a pot of aggravation. God, help us to, to have empathy and help us to have wisdom to know what those solutions look like. Help us to... Keep Eastlake a place that doesn't have barriers, that doesn't have uh, systems or hoops for people to jump through, God, because we feel like that most accurately represents your heart, God. You just want this to be a place for all people, no matter where they would place themselves on, on the, the scale of religious or irreligious, God. Help us to know that um, we do have free access to you, even if people or the church we grew up in or our parents may say that we're not worthy to, to have a relationship with God or we have to do 20 million things first. God, help us that to be real to us and help us to fight against systems that are, that are hurting people, God, and help us to have the wisdom to identify those 
and the heart and the compassion and the strength to be a voice for the voiceless. And all these things we pray in your name. Amen.